Well, welcome everyone. This is Ben and Cynthia Bailey again. We are covering week seven of The Promised One by Nancy Guthrie, Seeing Jesus in Genesis. And this week we are covering Abraham and Isaac. Hi, what do you think about that as an intro song? I love it. I love Fixer Upper. Now, I don't know if we'll be able to use that song because I'm sure there's some copyright limitations (laughs) and we're not going to actually pay any money for it. So we'll... So shh, don't tell anybody. But I was thinking about you. You do love Fixer Upper, I do. and I wonder—is that show still going? Is it still popular? I don't we, know. We're not really in tune to TV shows, but there was a for a while there was you a whole. Said sh- I love it, but I haven't seen it probably like in two years. Well, yeah. Uh, but for a while there was a whole string of shows like Fixer Upper and Biggest Loser that you were pretty into, and. Uh, I used to love complaining about how you'd make me watch them, but I'd always find my way into watching them. <laughs> you liked them. <laughs> I, I kind of did like that. I, I like Biggest Loser. And uh, actually, I was thinking about Biggest Loser while I was reading through this section on <laughs> Genesis. Do so, tell. so just just hang on. But you know how Biggest Loser, um, and of course, you know, my brother-in-law, Matt, uh, you and your sister Nicole used to bond over Biggest Loser, and then Matt's rule was that he would watch until somebody cried, and then first tier he was out. And which was so, like three minutes, which in. was a beautiful strategy because he'd only have to watch <laughs> for like six minutes. But you know, I mean, the the structure is they you know normally set up someone's life and kind of show you all of the problems and the reasons why they're in their current state of unhealth. And with with all of those shows, they were shows of slow, steady. Well, sometimes quick transformation. I mean, Fixer mm-hmm. Upper was a total transformation every show. You got the payoff. But Biggest Loser was this this long, slow, steady journey of transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important. Last week when we were talking about the life of Abraham, kind of talked about how you could, as you're reading through this, you could think of it almost like the story of a marriage where chapter 12 is the, the proposal, they become engaged, God commits himself to Abraham. Chapter 15 is the covenant rat- ratification ceremony, that's the marriage. And then chapter 16 all the way to 25 is living in the light of this new relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, another way you could think about the life of Abraham is almost like a binge-worthy series of something like The Biggest Loser or <laughs> um, maybe a whole... Uh, a fixer upper where they spend an entire season just on one home. Because mm-hmm. um, when you're reading through these these narratives in Genesis, starting Genesis chapter 12, it's really important to see these as narratives of transformation. See, each of these characters that take center stage, they're not static figures. They grow, they develop, they're not fully formed. They're like all of us. They're on a journey. They're being transformed you know, one of the beautiful things about the Abraham story is that he is the father of faith. I mean, he's a hero of the faith, but he doesn't start out that way. And we come on the scene at age 75, and then you can kind of paint a composite picture of this person, and he's um, capable of kind of repeated pretty shabby dealings <laughs> with uh, of deception that um, endangers his wife, puts her life in danger. And I think you can clearly see that he was a man by nature of, of little moral courage, um, who was too anxious about his own personal security, more anxious about that than the security of those around him. He was vulnerable to pressure um, from his wife's insistence, uh, multiple 
um, occasionally. He, he, he doesn't come across as a man of strong principle, and his sense of responsibility seems to be somewhat weak. Um, I think J.I. Packer articulates that he really is an easygoing, unheroic figure, but what the process, the series of stories, is you're seeing the transformation where he becomes a new man. So one way to think about the Abraham story as you're reading through the whole thing is is look at it as if a series of 10 different episodes mm-hmm. where he's encountering different people, different situations, and he's having to learn what it means to live as a man of faith in these different scenarios and situations. And so you have four key episodes of what it means to become a man of faith um, in between 12 and 15, so kind of in between engagement and marriage. Mm -hmm. And then you have six key episodes following the covenant ratification ceremony where he's engaging with different um, people trying to live in the light of these promises that God has given them. So what we're going to do today in this section is we're going to do kind of do a 20,000-foot flyover, land the plane, and camp out at Chapter 22 for a few minutes and um, try and tie it all together. Okay. So as we look at this section in Abraham's life, what it really does, I think Moses is doing a brilliant job of, of taking Abraham and really illustrating what does it mean to live as God's people in the midst of a hostile world. And so you have the scenes with um, Hagar and Ishmael. You have his uh, encounter and dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah, and then multiple scenes with Abraham and Abimelech. All right, so let's jump into our first episode of season Abrahamic transformation. <laughs> Season two of Abraham's transformation. Uh, and this, well, this first episode is, I mean, actually, if, I mean, if we want to run with this metaphor, some of these episodes get pretty racy. Uh-huh. They're pretty uh, R-rated. It's not safe for. The little ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not safe for the whole family. If you're um, riding in the minivan, uh, put the headphones on. <laughs> so we start with the scene with Sarah and Hagar. So this is a f- the first scene, chapter 16, this first episode. So Abraham's been given the promise, and this is 10 years after the promise has been given. So there's only a couple times we're given time stamps, so we want to take make sure we note. Mm-hmm. This is 10 years. So they've been waiting for 10 years. I mean, here the core question and the core temptation is, are they going to invent their own way of fulfilling God's promises, or are they going to wait till he brings it about? And the promise is for children, for offspring. This one's just a hard one for me. I think I feel bad for Sarah. I know that she is, I know it's her idea, but just think about, okay, God's given the promise. They waited 10 years. She has this hope of not being barren anymore and it's not coming about yet. And that's, that's a long time to wait. And so I just imagine that that's such a desperate place to be in when you're considering giving your your maid servant to your husband to have a child instead of you. Well, this story is messy, and I think that's one of the realities as you're reading through these families. I mean, these foundational families of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their families are so messy. Mm, I think some of the messiness there is, is just our own sin and then our own emotions that come into play. I mean, the Bible doesn't talk about what maybe what— turmoil that Sarah's heart was in, just that she might have been eaten alive by jealousy over the fact that Abraham had a child with, you know, with Hagar. And that would just be so hard. 
I mean, there's some unique things about this story, about whose faith is really faltering, who's at fault in so many different ways. Was Abraham even wrong with sleeping with her? There's an, there's an interesting verbal parallel in verse 2 where um, it says, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai, which is a parallel where God, when he's confronting Adam in, verse, in chapter 3, he says, because mm-hmm. you listened to the voice of Eve. Um, and so there's the parallels that you get this sense of, all right, it's Abram's responsibility. It's Adam's responsibility to be the guardians and keepers of this promise. And mm-hmm. they're, they're allowing even the voice of their wife to... Dissuade them from it. Yeah. And so, but I think here the key is the temptation. Are you going to trust the Lord to bring about his promises in his time? Or are you going to um, force things to work on your own timetable? And then we move into chapter 17. And it's so encouraging to me how often you'll have these episodes where Abraham nearly stumbles and falters. And then God comes in and reiterates his promise, mm-hmm. encourages him. These um, chapter 17. Uh, so 15 is the covenant ratification ceremony. Then 17 is a time where we're going to renew it. We're mm-hmm. going to refresh it. And those those times are so important. And it could be, it's probably, I mean, we don't know how long it is. It's at least 10 years after the original promise. So maybe, I mean, at maybe five, seven, who knows how, how many years. But there's a significant amount of time that's come since chapter 15. And we need those times of renewal where we're, we're recommitting to... Um, the covenant and the promises we made to one another and to the Lord. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week, because we're reminding, we're renewing that commitment. But here in chapter 17, it's not just renewal. There's also an expansion. He's given a new name with new promises and a new command. And so this is where circumcision comes in. And I love that even before that, even before he renews the covenant with him, and he it opens up in 17 saying that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, I am God almighty walk before me and be blameless that I make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. He's reminding Abraham. He's, he's drawing close to Abram and Sarah in their, in their time of weakness, their time of doubt. Mm -hmm. God draws near Mm -hmm. and he reminds them of the promises that he's made to them. And the fundamental call for them is walk before me. Your job is to walk with me. Right. My job is to fulfill the promises and to make sure right. these things happen. Because he knows he's weak. He knows that they're faltering, they're wavering in their, in their hope or in, in remembering God's promises. And he draws near and reminds them. I think it's sweet of the Lord to do that. Then in verse 6 of chapter 17, I think it's fascinating that you'll often see whenever the covenant renewals happen, he'll remind them of promises in the past, give them encouragement for the present, and then hope for the future. And so he's going to mm-hmm. reiterate, and he actually foreshadows the Davidic covenant, mm-hmm. the covenant made when the kings are going to come. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to point them forward to the hope. He draws their eyes up. And so then uh, the reiteration for the promise of the birth. And then you have this, which would kind of be the second episode in the life of Abraham. Is he going to live according to these promises? The episode with Abram, with Abraham interceding for Sodom. So just as Egypt so often in the Bible is symbolic of the world trying to allure us into itself for, for refuge, a false refuge. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of the classic example of wickedness, worldliness, where God's going to come and bring judgment. But here, this illustration you have is, all right, because the whole theme is what does it mean to be men and women of faith in a fallen world? 
So Abraham is in the midst of a world that's fallen in Sodom. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how is he going to respond? Mm -hmm. A a pompous shunning, a holier than thou, can't believe these, you know. Or is what does he do? And here you see him as a man of faith. Uh, he's he's pleading for Sodom. He's mm-hmm. petitioning the Lord, don't destroy them. What about the righteous? What if there's 50 righteous? Would you still destroy them? Actually, what he's doing is he's bartering with the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's a scene of almost someone at the marketplace bartering. Oh, I give you $20 for this. No, 20, how about 15? You want to take 15? What about? Mm-hmm. And he's going back and forth trying to get him down. But one thing that's fascinating is do you know how low... Abraham keeps pushing. So he keeps pushing God down. He keeps them and he he takes them all the way down to five. Like you wouldn't destroy it if there was just five righteous, would you? He stops there. Why does he stop? He knows there's not just one. Yeah, he doesn't take it all the way down. He can't conceive that what if there's only one? Uh-huh. But I love that this is the next step in his transformation. His heart is softening towards the brokenness that he sees. And I think that's giving us a foreshadowing, a hint that on the one hand, there's none righteous. There's no not one. Mm-hmm. But the question is, what if What if he could take it all the way down to one? Would God still, is it possible for the wicked many to be saved by the righteous one? Could it be? And that's going to be a theme running through the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that mm-hmm. the righteousness of the one could save the wickedness of the many? Mm-hmm. So after he intercedes for Lot, then there's kind of chapter 19, which is this, strange tale of Lot and him running and his wife died and daughters, you know. So we're just going to uh, move through that. Yep, move right <laughs> we're on. just going to move right on. <laughs> and so the next episode in Abraham's life is now him with Abimelech. So he is going to sojourn in a different, you know, things seem to go wrong for Abraham when he goes places he shouldn't. Like it's, it, there's, there's ambiguity. Should he have gone down to Egypt during the famine or should he not? Should he be going here? Should he stay in the promised land. But here is kind of the return of the the same old thing we saw in Egypt, that he's going to, there's this fascinating encounter here where Abimelech sees Sarah. She's beautiful. They tell them that that's his sister, not his wife. They take it. Abimelech takes her. And then God comes to him into the middle of the night and tells him, you're a dead man. The woman you have is another man's wife. And then Abimelech says, like, it's not my fault. He, he didn't tell me. <laughs> if he would have just told me his wife, how he, he, he didn't tell me. And uh, the Lord says, I, I know that you're blameless. That's why I kept you. I mm-hmm. kept you from doing this act of wickedness. Mm-hmm. Now, give her back to him or every woman in your town is going to be barren. A God and yet again is saving Abraham from himself. Saving Abraham from himself. And But what's fascinating to me is part of the promise and Abraham's role and responsibility is to be a blessing, mm-hmm. to be a blessing to com- the community. Mm-hmm. And here, um, God will have his people to be the salt of the earth. And God is actually keeping Abimelech from becoming as wicked as he would left to himself. God's keeping him from sinning. And that's exactly what the salt is supposed to do. Like the salt of the earth is supposed to go into the decaying areas of the world and preserve it, help it not get any worse. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see as part of our calling as God's people. And even when Abraham's failing in that, God's still making sure that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we come to 21 where we have the birth of Isaac. So finally, 
after 25 years. Where's the um, clap? Where's the clap? Oh, yeah, yeah, because the sound, hold on. There you go, there you go. Got it, got it. So finally we have the birth of Isaac after 25 years of waiting and this this Mm. walking by by faith. But let's just take a few minutes and kind of, kind of land the plane and on chapter 22 because this is this is the culminating story mm-hmm. of Abraham's life this is in essence the final test mm. so there's been nine of these episodes leading up to this and then this is this is the final one you think about they finally have gotten the thing that their heart has longed for for so long mm-hmm. the hope had been deferred and deferred and deferred and finally but actually, this is a moment of incredible testing. Mm-hmm. This is, it's, on the one hand, it's very dangerous for God, very dangerous for God, for God to give you the thing that your heart so desperately desires. Yeah. Um, one of Tim Keller's favorite sermon illustrations um, that he, he tells often is from an article uh, that Cynthia Heimel wrote in 1990. No it, relation. Uh, <laughs> called tongue and chick so maybe (laughs) maybe you could she's my soul sister (laughs) maybe you could uh i don't know in the village voice i don't know if that's um so this is 1990 Uh and so let me quote to you this article she says i pity celebrities no i really do sylvester stallone bruce willis barbara streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings but now their wrath is awful I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, and they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and and insufferable. Mm. Ugh, that's haunting. That is haunting because there's, you know, Romans talks about how in the ultimate form of judgment is God giving you up. Mm-hmm. He gives you up to the desires of your own heart. Mm-hmm. And so it is a dangerous place to be when there's something you're desiring and pursuing and wanting and you finally get it. Now, I think there is a difference between like Abraham and Sylvester Stallone <laughs> in that the thing that Abraham was so desiring was the fulfillment of a promise that God had made to him. Yeah. So I don't know if if God promised Sylvester Stallone that he'd be Rocky or anything like that. But... <laughs> Mm-hmm. But here, the, re- the real question is, when you look to the gifts of the Creator to fulfill you in the way that only the Creator can, you self-destruct. Mm-hmm. You destroy yourself and those gifts. So it seems like this test in Genesis 22 is really about what do you cherish most? Mm-hmm. Do you cherish God or do you cherish His gifts? Mm-hmm. I think in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to him and says, do you love me more than your father's house? Are you willing to leave your past and move forward? Mm-hmm. And then here at the end of his life, the question is, do you love me more than your son? And are you willing to give me your future? So let's look at, let's look at the test in verse 1 and 2. So Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2. 
After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one side of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right, so after these things, I think this is pretty, after all of these things, Mm -hmm. all of this testing, 25 years of waiting, of walking, of slowly growing, now it's time for the ultimate test. You know, I think it's important to know God's not going to test you beyond what you can bear. He's not going to put heavy burdens on weak shoulders. But this this is the ultimate test, but it comes at the end. Mm And we see if he's ready for it. And then notice when God speaks to him, look in verse 2. Uh, God tells him, he, he reiterates three times which yeah. son. Abraham, take your son. Okay, here's Ishmael, nope. your only Aww. son. Okay, how about this? No, the only son you love. There's three times. Yeah. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, the beloved son. And so so there's no no doubting. There's no ambiguity. There's no ambiguity. And it says, go to the land of Moriah. Um where you'll offer him as a burnt offering. So think three contexts of offering. There's all the offerings for sin offerings that make atonement, that make the way into God's presence possible. There's all of the burnt or whole offerings, which is ascensions offerings. These are the offerings that say you're coming into my presence. And then there's all the fellowship offerings, which is celebration in his presence. So this is a burnt offering, a whole offering. It's the offering that brings you into God's presence. And remember the key question that God reiterates in chapter 17 is walk with me. So Mm -hmm. presence is the key. So can you imagine what that would have been like for Abraham? I can't imagine. This also is a really difficult story to kind of get our minds around. Like, Mm -hmm. why would God ask this? Mm -hmm. What is God asking? I mean, I don't think this story is simply showing us that no matter what God calls us to do, we we do, no matter how crazy it is. So God asked Abraham this crazy thing, and he was just going to do it. Because um, I, I just think it's odd that Abraham doesn't say, you know, what, take my who, what, you know, and then ask Sarah, what what type of mushrooms did you put in the leek soup last night? Because <laughs> I have had the craziest dream imaginable. Um, he doesn't do it. When God asks him to do it, it's almost like he he understands what God is is asking. Um, and I think one of the things that can help us when we're reading this story or when we're reading all of these stories is the way that biblical narratives do their teaching. So one of the things that makes the Bible so potent, so powerful, is in every single culture it affirms and then denies, attacks, critiques. One of the things is critiquing. You have to ask how do narratives, how do stories, how do these stories critique common cultural realities. And one of the things that this story is doing is, so one of the key cultural concepts in, is the concept of primogeniture, which is the concept that all of the hopes and all of the dreams for the family rested upon the firstborn son. Okay. And so it's interesting when you read through the Pentateuch, especially how often there has to be a ransom, a sacrifice for the firstborn son. It's like, well, why? A special sacrifice in Leviticus for the firstborn son. When the angel of death at Passover comes in Exodus, you know, who do they take? It's the firstborn son of every home. And you think, well, well, why? I'm the firstborn son. Why? He's just picking on us? I mean, what, what's right? Take, you know, take the baby. Take the other kid. Take the run. Why take, why take the firstborn? And it's because this idea of primogeniture where all of the hopes, all of the dreams, family, 
um, rested upon you know, the beloved son. Now, often that phrase is a technical phrase. It's a legal phrase. It's not meaning like the favorite one, like, oh, everybody knows that, you know, this, this, this son is the favorite because he's the athlete. No, the beloved son is the one, the firstborn son would inherit all of the property and he'd have all of the responsibility for the, the flourishing and the maintaining of the family name. Yeah. And so, so this adds meaning and weight to God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his firstborn. It adds meaning and weight to it that all firstborns have to be redeemed. All families need to be redeemed because the the curse of Adam is on all of us. Mm. And so, so on the one hand, what this is doing is giving Abraham a very stark contrast that he knows God is gracious and loving, but he's mm-hmm. also holy and just. And he, he, he doesn't know how these two things can fit together, mm-hmm. but they do. I think in some sense, when God commands him to do this, it makes sense. And that doesn't mean it's easy. I think it's a terrible, awful experience, but I think there's a logic to it that does make sense. Mm-hmm. And so notice in verse three, how Abraham then goes about obeying. You know, he rises early in the morning and then he takes everything and then he goes. A couple of things I think are unique. No, it's a three day journey out. And then Abraham says to this young servant, stay here. Um, no distractions, but he tells them we're going to worship. So he understands this is a worship service. It's about presence, coming into the presence, and he knows about sacrifice. He knows mm-hmm. that it's something has to be sacrificed to have the presence of the Lord. He knows those things. And then notice um, what he brings with him in verse 7. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? I love Matthew Henry said, because from the very beginning, these are the two things you need the wood or the the materials of worship service, the ordinances, and then you need the fire, the Holy Spirit. It's saying same as spirit and truth. You need the the elements and then the spirit. And noticing just even the materials are just so so directly pointing to Christ and the cross. You know, like the wood for the offering. It's on the third day. So really, when you're reading this story, it's an the symbolism is Abraham pictures God the Father, Mm -hmm. and then Isaac pictures the Son. So notice, where are they going to go? Where does God tell him to go? To the land of Moriah. So go up to the mountain of Moriah. What's the significance of Moriah? So Moriah is the place where Isaac is almost sacrificed. Then Moriah is the threshing floor that David purchases to stop the angel of judgment after the census. And then that becomes the location where he builds the temple. So Moriah is Isaac, temple, which then becomes cross. Wow. Crucifixion. Yeah. So that's very significant. And then notice how it's, yeah, there's just these hints. It's like, hmm, they're taking the dog. It's a three-day journey out. On Isaac gets laid the wood Mm -hmm. for his own sacrifice upon him. And then notice in verse 9, Abraham built an altar altar there. That's what he's done all throughout the promised land. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar. He's done this many times. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship, but I wonder if there's ever been an altar that he's built like this. Yeah. And then he reaches out, and then he's stopped by the angel of the Lord. 
the angel of the Lord only comes on the scene a few times. It's the angel of the Lord who rescued Hagar when she was in the wilderness. And then here it's the angel of the Lord who repres- who stops Abraham and rescues, rescues. Isaac. Yeah. And I, I think the angel of the Lord is an image of the pre-incarnate Christ. So mm. I think that's who this is. Mm. And then notice what he says in verse 12. Now I know that you fear God. So that's how do, do you fear God? That's the beginning of wisdom. That's where we the beginning of loving Him. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only Son, your only Son, mm. from me. And notice Isaac's question in verse seven: Behold, the fire and the water here, but where's the Lamb? Where's the Lamb of God? Behold, where's the Lamb? And these are echoes that John's going to reiterate. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, what does he say in John chapter one? Behold, there's the Lamb. Here's the one. And then it ends, and the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him again. He names it Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And I think that's the great lesson, the transformation in his whole life. Can you, can you trust that the Lord is going to provide? Mm. And, and so many of his failures are a failure to believe that the Lord will provide for him. Mm-hmm. And this is the great lesson of Abraham's life. And then what flows out of that lesson at the end of chapter 22, the Lord reiterates and gives him uh, promises, more promises that I'm going to multiply your offspring. It's going to spread like the stars. And we're actually living in the light of that promise as living in the new covenant as Abraham's family is spreading more than the stars in the sky. And then the second promise he gives them is I'm going to give you victory. You're, you shall possess the gates of your enemies. You will, have, you will be victorious. You will be more than conquerors through him. And it's fascinating because he says, in your offspring, singular, in your seed, in your offspring, mm. there will be a child that comes from you, mm. that the whole nations are going to be blessed. Mm-hmm. and They will spread and they will have this victory where the gates of their enemies, the gates of hell, will not prevail against them. Mm-hmm. Amen. So now we live as Abraham's children in the light of those promises that he purchased by his, his faithfulness. And I think some of the beautiful connections to who Christ is in this story anyway, is we can read back Genesis chapter 22 and almost impose God the Father on Abraham and Mm -hmm. Jesus on Isaac, and we can read it and we can say, you know, here's God in verse 2 saying, I'm going to take my son, Mm -hmm. my only son, whom I love, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to take him to the land of Moriah. And there he's going to be offered as a burnt offering on one of those mountains, just as I've told you. And then you can see Jesus as the true son who willingly accepts to be the sacrifice, who bears the wood. And he's, he's the true firstborn of our family who's going to pay the penalty so all of his other brothers and sisters can have life. Mm-hmm. The angel of the Lord looks at Abraham and he says, now I know that you fear the Lord. Now I know that you love me. Mm-hmm. We can look at Christ on the cross and say, now we know that you love us. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's some transformation. <laughs> Abraham transforms from a man of fear to a man of faith. That sounds like it could be a good sermon series. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, as we discuss Abraham and Isaac. Join us next week. Have a great week.